Would you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3? James chapter 3, that's found on page 1,290 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading the first 12 verses of James 3. As you're turning there, just a, a brief reminder of what has gone before. James has been interested in showing his audience the proper way to live for Jesus. He has been hoping that his audience would grow in maturity. That's really the, the purpose of James as he addresses many of the situations his congregation that has been spread about the world is facing. We just finished James chapter 2 that deals with what is a true faith, that a true faith is a faith that does work, that brings about good deeds. It is a living faith, and now he turns his attention to taming the tongue. Before we read this passage, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that we would come before your word receptive with our hearts wide open to receive it. We pray that you would strike us where we need sins expunged, where we need to mortify our flesh, that you would give to us, though, the proper understanding of our Savior. This is who we find in your word. And we pray that you would speak to us, for we know that this is the inspired and infallible and errant word given to your people. And we trust that we have been given the grace through the Holy Spirit to receive it, to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. We began our service with that passage from Isaiah, and purposely so, a passage where you encounter the holiness of God and the first place, the first member of the body that Isaiah recognizes as being unholy is his mouth. The prophet Isaiah. What member of a body is more related to the prophetic office than their mouth? 
than their tongue that speaks the will of the Lord, that declares to the people the pathway to repentance that brings the very word of God to the people. This is the prophet Isaiah, should he not have the cleanest mouth of all peoples, and when confronted with the holiness of God, he realizes his mouth is filthy. His mouth is filthy. What can cleanse him from his sin? Studies have been done on and conducted to see what are the, the dirtiest places in a home. It's not surprising to us. We would think the dirtiest places would perhaps be the, the bathroom, the toilet in the bathroom. That's probably the dirtiest place. That's where our minds might initially go. And yet reoccurring in these studies is that the dirtiest places in the homes are often actually the kitchen sponge or rag, which is just gross to think about, and also the toothbrush holder, the place where we set the vessel that is to clean our mouths. And and why would that be? Well, our mouths are perhaps the dirtiest of our members. Additional studies have shown that our mouths, that our saliva is far more filthy than the toilet seat itself. There are far more bacteria and germs within our very mouths. Now that's the physical reality, but I don't think James would find that surprising as he talks about the spiritual reality of that very member. He calls it a world of unrighteousness. He says that our tongues, talking to believers, talking to brothers even referring to himself in this way, says that their their tongues are set on fire by hell. Can that be that our mouths at times spew forth hellfire and damnation? When we ask that question, I think we all know the answer is, of course, yes. That's the danger of this member The Bible focuses a lot on the tongue, and sadly, I think it's a member we don't, that we forget about. We place, or perhaps try to place, a whole lot of effort in making holy, or at least appearing to make holy, our actions, putting to death certain sins and temptations that are visible or that we're really embarrassed about, but how many of us truly recognize and should be embarrassed about the words we speak how we talk to others, how we represent others, how we talk about fellow image bearers of God himself. Again, remember, where did Isaiah go? It was his mouth. He covered it. He covered his mouth. The presence of God himself. The Bible focuses on this a lot. Matthew 12, 33 to 37, in Jesus' own words, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, notice this, listen to this, people will give account For every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, 
Christ was speaking to those who opposed him at this point, but James takes the same imagery, the same truth, and applies it to their very context as the dangers of our tongue and what not ought to be is what he says in this passage. He applies it to this situation, but notice how it begins. Likely a situation where there are those who are pushing themselves forward to be teachers. And so he's addressing what seems to be a problem in the churches. Those who don't have clean tongues, those who are not righteous and are yet pushing themselves forward to this office. And he's saying, hold on a second, wait a second. Not many of you should desire to be teachers. And then he doesn't just address teachers, he addresses the whole body. So it's, it's a message, obviously, to the people of God. But he has that intent of those who are wanting to be teachers. Wait a second, because you know what afflicts the whole body, is what he says. You know what all of us undergo in the danger of this tongue. Be hesitant. Not many of you should, in fact, have these positions of honor and of authority and a position to speak because that tongue can set the world on fire. That tongue is dangerous, and as he says, we all know this. We all are afflicted with this dangerous member. James says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we, that's an important pronoun, he's, in, he's bringing himself in that group, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so there is an application to be made to those here who seek this teaching office, who seek to be teachers in certain capacities and situations, who desire to fill this role, be warned, is what James is saying. There will be a greater strictness, a greater judgment to those who possess that office and that, that place where the tongue is your primary use. And it makes sense. If the tongue is this dangerous, those who use it all the time have a much greater threat. And that's also a word of warning to us. The foolish are those who run off their tongues. The more you speak, the more capacity you have to create problems. And that's not saying we don't speak. It's that we guard it, that we watch it. His goal, again, is to create mature Christians, to create a mature body. And so he's addressing those who would lead them. And he's addressing the congregation itself to know the, that dirtiest part. And we need that reminder we need it here just like they needed it then. A reminder of what God's word really says about our speech and what we say. Verse 2, he says, For we all stumble, and again, he brings himself into this, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So here's what James is saying. If you want to be those who, the, the, the man, the person who would not stumble in anything that he says, you need to be a perfect man, mature and able to bridle his whole body. So what he's also saying is if you control this tongue, and I'm not going to grab it, that'd be kind of gross, but you know what I'm doing. If you, if we were to control this little member, this muscle in our bodies, the littlest of our members, if we could control that, we could control our whole bodies. We'd bridle our very members, our whole soul. But notice that it's, it starts with if we could. But James says we all stumble in many ways. People of God, our words declare who we are. We, we see that in Jesus' words. We see that in James' words. Out of the overflow of your, of your heart, your mouth speaks. 
Our words are nothing but a conduit and a pathway to our heart itself, to our minds, to the place where we reason and think and and what we hold dear. And out of that overflow, out of the overflow of our own soul, is our words. And if they're not controlled, if they're not bridled, it means we are not controlled. We are not tamed. Indeed, we are not. Our words declare who we are. They report on who we are. And we'll see that as we go through. I'm going to take points from a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson. I think his points really capture what this text is addressing. The first point is the disproportionate power of the tongue. The disproportionate power of the tongue. And that word, disproportionate, really captures what James is trying to say in the first few verses by pointing to the smallness of this member, the size of it, and the seeming relatively unimportance of that member, and yet what it brings about. So there's this disproportionate power. It's this small thing that packs this amazing punch that has so much influence. So that'll be our first point. The second point will be the devastation caused by the tongue. And then third, the tragic inconsistency of the tongue. First, the disproportionate power. So to show that disproportionate power, he illustrates it. He gives the example of the bit in a horse's mouth and of the rudder of a ship. And here's his point. Horses are strong animals. They are large and majestic, far more powerful than a man himself. And yet a man can tame a horse and can troll a horse with the bit in its mouth. It boasts of great things. It's disproportionate in its power. This small little piece controls this majestic, strong animal. And the same is true of the ship. This gigantic vessel that is pushed forward by the winds that rides across the waves at great speeds and great strength, bursting forth the the waves itself, is controlled by what? But the smallest part of the ship, its rudder. And he even says, by mastering the bit of a horse or the rudder on a ship, you're able to control the whole vessel. Mastery of that small thing is to master what's greater than it itself, the animal, the horse. And so we apply that to ourselves. Mastering our tongue is mastery of ourselves. If it could be achieved... And it's also, we can apply that illustration, James speaks as almost as if we are guided in the same way, like a bit guides a horse, like a rudder guides a ship, our mouths guide us. Now we tend to not think of the tongue in that way. We tend to think that our tongue is an overflow of our choices, and in many ways that's true. But yet you can see his point. We are even guided by this tongue, by our words and what we say. This is what directs our life. What we read from Jesus as he was, was condemning those who opposed him, that brood of vipers, he said every word would be judged. Be judged by the words you say. And so mastering the tongue is mastery of the body itself. Verse 5 says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. That's its boast. The bit boasts of the control of a horse. The rudder boasts the control of a ship, the tongue boasts the control of man. And I think we could take that a step further. The tongue boasts control of the world. It is, you know that old expression, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now the pen is referring to the written word, not necessarily the spoken word, but it's the same truth. 
Words have power. Words have meaning. Words direct. Words guide. It is by words that countries are built and countries fall. It is by words that wars are started. And death can come. And so knowing this truth, he makes us aware of it, that we would seek to to control it, that we would be warned. But notice, notice what he says. If you just take what he's saying and read it, you don't see a lot of commands here. I believe, and I think this is certainly true from the text, you can infer the fact that he is commanding, he is ordering the congregation to control their words. Why else would he be speaking this? Why else would he be saying this? That's a part of it. But it, it's, it's a thing we need to take notice of. His primary response to this and his primary point is not to then say, so control your tongue. In fact, he, he goes the utter opposite direction and says you can't. We would expect the therefore to come. Therefore, guard your mouth. But that's not what he says. He says it can't be tamed. It's a restless evil. We can't tame it. We've tamed every nature of human things. Every created thing that God has made, we have tamed in one way or another, or we can tame. But he says you can't tame your tongue. Now we'll get into what he's actually doing more with that. But just to bring that to our attention... In one sense, it almost seems hopeless. In one sense, what he's saying is, it's, it, you can't. You can't do this. Now, that's not the end goal. That's not finally what he's saying. But the absence of the command should, should gear us towards something, should direct our attention to where he's really bringing us, and that is the gospel. That is Christ himself. It isn't just simply, now go out and guard it. It's that you can't do it. And so if you want to address this, you can't seek it in seeking to tame your tongue in your own power. It takes someone else. And that's what he's saying. So that's the disproportionate power of the tongue. Next, the devastation caused by the tongue, our second point. What are the great things that it boasts? He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. This is the devastation that the tongue causes. We are well aware of the danger of sparks, the dangers of fire. How many forest fires that have consumed hundreds of thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of of cost to rebuild was set ablaze by a simple spark by a family camping who thought the fire was put out and there was one little ember and one little leaf struck that one little ember and it blew into something that was dry and then the overflow and outflow of that tiny, almost insignificant thing was a a problem for the whole nation that took hundreds of thousands of dollars in an effort to put it out to stop the devastation caused by that small thing. What a better description for words and the dangers of them than that. A comment, a false teaching, a angry word, a word that cuts down, a lie, the devastation that that can cause. How much worse, too, for those who would be a teacher among them, for a teacher to be possessed of that tongue, to set on fire all of these things. That's the danger. It's a danger for the teachers. It's a danger for the congregation. It's devastating. 
leads to the destruction of all. What destroys families? And what destroys marriages? What destroys churches? I've heard it said by others who will counsel marital relations where one spouse has cheated on the other, and it isn't uncommon for the spouse who has been cheated on to say, I can forgive the cheating. I can forgive even that activity itself, the physical activity, but what I can't forgive is the lies. The, the, the devastation of words destroys marriages, cutting comments. So many relationships, not just marital ones, so many relationships are destroyed by a thousand little cuts of words. That tongue that is used in that way. We've all experienced it. I know I have said so many things that I wish I could take back. It was too careless, too unloving, sometimes just too ignorant. And that's the other problem. We're, we're, we are, as James says, so unable to control this tongue because some of the devastation we cause is directly from our ignorance. It's not even perhaps what we're trying to do, but our careless words spew forth and destroy someone. We're just not even able to see it. It can be in ignorant ways. We've all experienced this. How many times have we said things that have harmed someone and hurt someone are careless words? And then we're not even aware of how often we do this. How often, I said this when we were reading the law, how often don't we gather and with our our group talk about someone else who's not there? And destroy that person and that relationship through the very subtle words we're saying. Sometimes we can couch it in, and it's not that bad. You know, I don't really mind that person. I don't really mind them together. But you know what really just kind of bugs me is this about them. And then the next person says, yeah, you know, that's true. That It really is annoying when they do this. And what are we doing? Are we... Living in love? Are we treating them the way they ought to be treated? Are we seeking what's best? Are we seeking to promote the best image of them to the world and even to ourselves? Because the reality is, our own words convince us of that. We'll destroy relationships with the people we're closest to by little words of annoyance and aggravation, picking away at them. And then others notice it. And then this person has been, in that sense, murdered. A relationship destroyed, their very character murdered because we didn't bridle our tongue in the smallest of ways. That's a subtle way of the tongue's danger. We all know the volcanic eruptions of the tongue, angry temper, outbursts, yelling, using foul language and profanity. We all know the devastation caused by false teaching where it leads hundreds of thousands of people away. All these ways the tongue brings about destruction. We try to hide it behind humor. How much is hidden behind this comment? It's just a joke. I was just kidding. So often when we say we were just kidding, it's just hiding a cavern of thoughts and frustrations and sinful thinking that was able to ooze out the cracks of our teeth and we just try to hide it and say, I was just kidding. And that's that, that subtle way to try to escape the fact that we're, what we're doing is we're hiding the danger of our tongue and the anger or frustration or annoyance in our hearts by a joke. 
And all it really was was us not controlling our tongue and revealed a little part of our heart, a little part of our very soul, a deadly part. That sinful part that seeks to destroy. James describes in verse 6 and beyond aspects of the fiery potency of the tongue, the way that devastation is caused. First, he states the character of this potency. He says, the character of the tongue is as a world of unrighteousness among our members. So first, the character of the tongue is unrighteous, and not just unrighteous, a world of unrighteousness. It represents and produces unrighteousness of every kind. It's, it's, it's a world of unrighteousness. You can't, you can't just put the, the, the sins of speech into one category. It's all of them, and it's a character of unrighteousness. The tongue's character is unrighteous. Second, James speaks of the potency of the tongue and the tongue's influence as staining the whole body. The character of the tongue is unrighteous. The influence of the tongue is that it stains who we are, our very natures. Third, James describes its extent. Its extent. He uses the unusual expression that it sets on fire the entire course of life. Another way of translating this is, is the cycle of nature. This is to mean it burns our entire life. Setting on fire the entire course of life. And fourth, James notes the tongue's affiliation. What's it affiliated with? And then he says it's set on fire by hell itself. James means there that fire, you could even describe it that the, the satanic fires, fire sent by Satan himself, is most easily caught by our tongue so that it immediately burns. And in short, that its, its material is fitted for receiving hell damnation and spewing that forth. That's the danger of the tongue. How true that it is that that catch, it's the glove, it's the mitt that catches the influence of the, the devil and temptations almost more than anything else is the tongue and what we say produces the fire of hell itself. Our words poison and hurt. Our words deceive, bring about destruction. And then he says that taming the tongue goes further, goes to what we cannot do. And if you wanted to escape this, you can't just think, I'll shut my mouth. I won't speak. I just won't open it. I won't use it. It's not enough. First, we can't. How, how many of us think you head into a situation, you even perhaps are aware of the gossip going on, and you tell yourself, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. This time I won't. And we do it anyways. Even knowing that it's a sin, knowing that we shouldn't say this, and we do it. So first, just shutting your mouth isn't even something we can actually carry out. But there are some of us who find it easier to close our mouths and not speak than others, but you're not left off the hook there. Just by not speaking doesn't involve a taming of a tongue. It just, it just is that it's in your head and it's not verbally said, but that's not what James is after. You see, true taming of the tongue is in taming speech. You have to speak. Sinclair Ferguson says, Though wise to hold a tongue, true mastery of the tongue is not in our ability to hold it in silence, but to master it when we speak. Our tongues are the reporters of our hearts that spread everywhere we go what is in our hearts. And if we're not going to spread what is good, we're still not using the tongue as we ought. If we were just to clamp our jaw tight, 
we're still not saying the things we should, and that's the final extent of this depravity of our tongue. Not only does it do this devastation, we're not using it as we ought. We don't say the words of life we should. We don't build people up when we ought. We don't encourage them. We don't speak the words of life. We keep our mouths closed when we know that we should say something. That isn't mastery of the tongue. That's just more tragedy that we face. And our third and final point, the tragic inconsistency of the tongue. The inconsistency of the tongue. You see this in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 says that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Inconsistency is a problem. None of us like inconsistency. And to, to, uh, to take another illustration to show that, how many of us would allow an inconsistent pet and the use of that pet and its own mouth and tongue? If a pet were to come to you and at times greet you and lick your hand in greeting, but then other times approach you the same way and rather than greet you and lick your, your hand in greeting, but instead ferociously clamp down on it and bite it and it was this inconsistent pet and you never knew when you'd be greeted and shown affection or instead when you'd be bitten and hurt. Well, that's how inconsistent the tongue is. With it, James says, we seek to bless the Lord. We would never speak poorly about God, would we? We would never run him down. We're never going to say these things about him. But then what do we do? We turn to those made in his image and treat them that way. So James' point is really to say that we are such hypocrites. With it, we bless the Lord and then turn around and curse his nature. Man was created in the image of God. To love our neighbor is fulfilling the law. To love our neighbor is to love God himself. In fact, we cannot love God without loving our neighbor. And so this inconsistency shows that we're just fools, that, that the true overflow of our mouths and heart is not the worship of the Lord, which we do to him, unless we're doing it to all. It does seem so hopeless with our mouths. We bless God, then curse his likeness. And then he says... And though this is a warning, this is also hopeful. You read it in verse 10. He says, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers. These, these things ought not to be so. Now, why is that hopeful? Because he's saying it's not supposed to be that way. But why isn't it supposed to be that way? Why is James addressing the congregation and telling them these things unless there is a way of hope? You see, he uses and goes to the example of the spring. A spring that can't produce fresh water and salt water. A spring that can't produce poison and what should be drunk in that ancient day. There were many wells and springs that came forth from caverns and tunnels and various things that would produce water, but some of the water was so mineral-laden it was poisonous to, to drink and ingest, and you had to be careful about what you had. And what he's saying is out of that same cavern, out of that same cave flowing this stream, can there be what is poisonous and what is good? And of course the answer is no. And so what James is saying, and this must be what he's saying, is that we are not to be that way because we are those cleansed in Christ. 
Why? Because if it wasn't meaning that, this would just be, all right, it's hopeless. But in him saying it ought not to be so, in him even putting in, in this in his letter and addressing it to his brothers, he is saying work on this, yes. And that's that implied call to action. But that call to action comes after something. And what it's coming after is a true faith in Christ. What we ended with in chapter 2. What is the difference between a true faith and a false faith? It's a faith that works, but remember what we saw. His intent was not to call the congregation primarily to work. It was to call them to a true faith by which they would work. And he's saying the same thing here. He's saying that this ought not to be so. Why else would he say that he is a teacher, right? Unless this was true. He includes himself. He doesn't say no one should be teachers. He says not many of you should be teachers because we who teach are, are judged with this greater strictness. He knows he's in this position himself, that he himself ought to be the one to do this, that there are to be teachers. And if there are to be teachers, then there are those who are washed and renewed in Christ. And as members of the congregation he's addressing, he's saying this is true, that in pursuing Christ himself, Thus we are renewed. You see, he's, he's bringing us, and though he doesn't say it explicitly, we know this is the point of his letter. He's bringing us to living for Christ, living for Jesus, and how that's, how that's achieved. And so he presents that danger and hopelessness of the tongue to show us that where it comes is in Christ, is in true faith, and by that true faith we are able to begin to cleanse our tongues, certainly not perfectly. As he said, that would take a perfect man. We're not that. It's really interesting to think of the history of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He knew firsthand in some 30-odd years of experience what a perfect tongue looked like. What a man who never uttered a false word was. He knew the standard, and yet he was willing in following Christ to be a teacher that he wasn't able to, to mimic perfectly, that he wasn't able to achieve what that teacher did, but he's pursuing it, and he's telling his congregation, you ought to be like Christ. In saying this ought not to be so, that's what he means. You ought to be like Christ, pure, and out of your heart comes purity. Psalm 15 asks the question, to the pilgrim worshipers who are approaching the temple, those who wish to ascend the mountain of God. We could even put Isaiah as we began our service there. What is Isaiah, the one who's approaching God's presence, who's acceptable in the presence of God? And this is what Psalm 15 says. Who can dwell with God? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The first answer of Psalm 15 to he who can dwell with God is he who has bridled his tongue. Now that is Christ himself, and that shows our need for Christ. But this text also shows our renewal in Christ, that we are to look for him to cleanse our tongues. And so, as we conclude, know that yes, we are to guard our tongues, we should be mindful of it, and that is what James is seeking to do, to warn his congregation of that danger. But don't seek to control your tongue merely in bridling it in your power, just thinking, i got to control it. 
James has already told us that's impossible. Seek the power where it truly resides in Christ himself. Later, we'll read James say that in, in, in condemnation or correction of his audience, you do not receive because you do not ask. That's what he says. And, and some don't receive because they ask wrongly. Well, this is where in our petitions to the Lord we receive because we ask and we want to ask that in truth to guard our tongues in the power of Christ and so be renewed. Beloved, 1 John 3, 2-3 says, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we hope for Christ, we know that we have the need for him and the save and him, him as our savior and we know we are and will be renewed in him and seek that only in him amen let's pray father in heaven we see through this text the danger of our tongues and in fact the 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 sin that so often spews forth from it and we repent We repent for our ignorant words, our careless words, our angry words, our hurtful words, our murderous words. We thank you for this reminder and indeed this warning from James of its danger, but we especially thank you for the truth to be known that we can't achieve it. For how many of us would be lost then in seeking to tame our tongues in a power we don't have? And instead, you clearly reveal through your word that we don't have this power, but we know you do. And so we make that request. And our request is not simply that we control the words that we speak, but that it would be Christ-like because we are Christ-like. That is our petition. We pray this in his name. 